Welcome to Talk is Jericho. It's the pot of thunder and rock and roll. And today, Dave Meltzer returns to Talk is Jericho to help tell the story of when Vince McMahon bought WCW. Such a crazy tale, even to this day, happened 18 years ago. We're going through the circumstances and events surrounding the sale and how Vince was able to come in and pretty much buy his biggest competition uh, and the promotion that had come close to putting him out of business as well. Oh, the irony and how he's able to do it at such a bargain basement price. I think if all of us took up a collection, we could probably pay as much as Vince did for WCW. We're also going to talk a little bit about how WCW's closing also impacted ECW, what the XFL had to do with Vince's creative decisions about WCW once he bought it. So much to talk about, one of the most incredible stories, maybe the biggest story, as Dave says, in pro wrestling history. So here we go. Uh, Dave Meltzer, one of our favorite guests, returning from the Wrestling Observer newsletter to talk all about when Vince bought WCW. But before that, a lot of people are talking about uh, uh, high school, what I call it? Uh, high School of Rock, which was the story about all of our high school bands, me, Rich, Billy, and Frank from Fozzie. A lot of great feedback. It was a great show, kind of reminiscing about your teenage years when you thought you were going to be a rock star. Luckily, it worked out uh, for us. But I've also been talking to Warren Rumpel and Kevin Ahoff, the other members of Scimitar. And Kevin actually sent me a couple of Scimitar songs. I would have put them in the, uh, the podcast last week if I had them. I didn't have them then, but I do have them now. So if you haven't listened to High School of Rock, uh, CJ's first bands go back and listen to it and then uh, here uh, we're going to do a scimitar song for you right now today and one more on Friday so straight from the collection of Kevin Ahoff all the way up in Toronto Canada this is Sour Grapes by Scimitar with uh, Kevin Ahoff on guitar Warren Rumpel on drums Chris Jericho on bass and Curtis Feist on vocals we forgot to mention Curtis would sing with us from time to time good times I recorded this probably in 1986 or 87 forgive the the bad uh, sound quality and the bad notes here and there but it was a lot of fun and we were rock stars when we did this and when we were 16 years old so check it out uh, right now right here on Talking Jericho Sour Grapes from Scimitar
All right, now that you've heard that classic, uh, the platters that matter, let's continue on with Dave Meltzer from the Wrestling Observer Newsletter, When Vince Bought WCW Starts Now. Okay, so March 26, 2001 was the uh, 18th year anniversary of the final WCW Nitro and uh, something that, that that I'm here with Dave Meltzer. We've done a lot of shows together and we're always looking for interesting topics to discuss. And this one obviously is one of the most interesting, maybe even in wrestling history, just because it, it made WWE a monopoly that lasted basically ever since up until this year with the advent of, of AEW. But um, I think people forget just how huge it was that 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 WWE was able to buy WCW and basically end the war for good. You know what's funny is if you look back at maybe like the modern history of wrestling, you know, the last fifty years, I think that that's the biggest thing that ever happened because even even Vince going national in '84 completely changed the business. Right. But as far as like the death of WCW, besides ending the chapter of the last really serious competition for Vince McMahon. Right, yeah. Um, it changed, like, for guys like you that, you know, had your career after that point. You know, WWE had some great years and you had a great career, but it changed everything in the sense that there was really no options. You know what I mean? It's like, you're either going to be in WWE or you're going to kind of be floundering around. I mean, yeah, you could go to Japan or whatever, but for the most part, and, and for fans too, you know, as far as there were other options, but they weren't really significant. It was like, Either you're a WWE fan or you're a lapsed fan who's going to talk about the good old days, but you're not watching wrestling anymore. Well, and you're right about that, especially to the point where I think people, once again, why I say people forget is now wrestling is so popular and so fertile, let's say, with so many places to work, even before AEW came into play, because you had Ring of Honor and New Japan and Evolve and Rev Pro and PWG and Impact, et cetera, et cetera. But in 2001, ECW was already closed at this point in time and closing closing. And I mean, yeah. Japan wasn't, you know, new Japan in 2001 is not what it is now in 2019. So you really were either WWE or going straight into the high school gym Indies basically. Yeah. And also for fans, the other thing was, is like fans that grew up on wrestling through 2001, early 2001, there were options. It's like, you know, like you could watch a variety of wrestling. If you liked one more than the other, that's cool. If you liked both, that's cool too. You had options. There was a whole generation of fans, which has created a really interesting thing now where you grew up and it was only WWE. And there's like a certain mentality that because this is how you grew up, it must always be that way. And like one of the things like with, with AEW that I found, I guess, fascinating or interesting is like the kind of thing of like, well, this is kind of like changing my, my wrestling world and people who don't like change, not realizing that the change is a hundred percent for the better. You, you know, you want competition wrestling so much more interesting with competition and, but they grew up with nothing but WWE. I mean, yes, you had TNA, which a few times, like they were never really challengers, but a few times they kind of got, you know, popular to a level, but never real, real competition. So it was always like, you know, the mentality was just like it's wrestling is WWE. And now, you know, back then, WWE was a significant player in wrestling from 84 on on a national basis. But wrestling was never only WWE. And, and so that that whole death of WCW to me was one of the not even one of it was the most significant thing that happened in wrestling. 
in my lifetime, probably. Yeah. Besides, you know, if you're talking tragedies, you know, like like the Benoit thing or whatever. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, business wise. But, but business wise, absolutely. And the thing is, too, it, 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 I remember being in WWE at the time because obviously I left WCW in '99, and I think for about a year before that I wanted out because you could see the the cracks in the foundation of what was going on in in, in WCW. But that sale happened, like, I mean, fairly quickly. I mean, from 99 to 2001, it's not that long. Uh, you know, two years before I was in WCW, and I think that might have been the time when, when we were doing the, the stadium shows. I mean, it might not have been. You know, end of 98 were the stadium shows. Okay, so but March 99, you still had some buzz going. So in a two-year period, you go from playing stadiums or two, you know, two year plus and change from playing stadiums to, to, to being sold to Vince McMahon. I mean, that, that decline happened very fast. It was amazing. I mean, that's the one thing about it. When you look back it's right. like, in 1998, they were on top of the world. I mean, even, even like the early part of 98, they were winning the ratings war. And even at the end of 98, when they were no longer winning the ratings war, the fact is business was phenomenal. I mean, by any standard, all through 98, and then it's really, 99 was the, the, the collapse, I would say. Like, they still did good business in early 99, but you could really see the thing starting to fall. And then by, you know, the second, third quarter of 99, I think, they, they, then they started, then they started, in, in around the third quarter of 99, I think is when they started actually, like, losing money. But it's like they had made money for years. And then in 2000, they lost $62 million. I mean, that's how quick it was. It went down the tubes. I mean, you were going in cities that you were doing, you know, 10,000 people, and you were coming back to those cities a year later and doing like 1,500 people. They ran audience off at a level that I've never seen before, and it still kind of blows my mind in hindsight when you look back at, you know, how quickly, you know, yeah, I mean, it's like it's like this business that had been around for, you know, dating back to Jim Crockett promotions in the 30s, that was strong, like strong as hell, probably this all-time peak in 1998, is done in early 2001. I, I mean, I know there's a, there's a multitude of reasons for that, but how does a company lose $62 million in a year? What were they spending it all on? It wasn't so much spending because they, their expenses were the same as the other years. It's that revenue collapsed. And what revenue, it was like, People stop buying pay-per-views and people stop buy, buying mm. tickets to shows at a rate that boggled your mind. I mean, they ran off their customers. I mean, that's really the, the key to everything. Yeah, I mean, expenses were high, but two years earlier, expenses were high and they were making a profit because revenue was high. You know, it's, it's like, it's, mm. it's like, it, you know, it, it's, this could never happen with WWE because the TV rights, you know, are such are what they are. But let's just say that it was a little bit more of the old business. Today's WWE was a little of the old business where you really weren't making money on TV, but you still had, you know, your your network and you still had your house shows and you still had your merchandise and all that, and you're and you're making a, a, a healthy profit, a significant profit every year, and then all of a sudden you you somehow just and I and, and it, it's it's hard to believe you could do it, but it happened. All of a sudden, like the fan base just stops buying tickets and stops buying merchandise and stops buying the network. You know, and your expenses, you know, you've got your, these all these contracts with all this talent that doesn't look overpriced. You're making a great profit. Now, all of a sudden, with no revenue coming in, you're losing money like crazy. That's really what happened. I mean, people say, 
the contracts were too high. But when they were signed, they weren't too high. The whole thing was, is people, it was a ticket selling and pay-per-view buying business. That's what the business was in that period. And customers stopped spending money on the product and started, and a lot of them started spending money on the WWF product. That was part of it. And part of it was just, they just ran people out of wrestling. You know, the, the ones that didn't, weren't WWF fans, they just got tired of WCW screwing with them or whatever. Right, because we talk about you know some of those matches in '99 and 2000. I think I think one of them I was even in uh, the 8.4 rating or something along those lines. I think it was me and The Rock and Benoit Triple H or something like that. Which, if it's an 8.4, that basically translates to eight and a half million people watching wrestling at that time frame, right? Pretty close, yeah. I mean, the thing is, is that there were between. I mean, generally, I would say on Monday nights, there were about 9 million people watching, watching. wrestling, which is, which is amazing. Oh you know, I mean, it was amazing then. It's more amazing now. Just to put some perspective on it, Dave, what was Monday's rating this Monday? 2.3? It was, it was 2,665,000. Okay, so 2, 2.7 million, and you're saying at this point in time, there was 9 million watching on a Monday 9 night. million, and some, some quarter hours and some weeks, like a really big week, it could be as much as 11 million. Gosh. 9 million was, was typical. Not like a great week. It was a typical week. So, and, and, and what you said earlier about how they lost all the revenue, it wasn't so much that they were spending, you know, $8 million on Master P. It was more like they were losing all this revenue because people were disappearing. And those fans never came back. I think for the most part, they didn't. Because the one thing was, if you, if you look at it in 2001, WCW goes down, okay? Right. You would think, okay, now there's no competition. WWF ratings are going to skyrocket. And really, WWF ratings, I think that, it, it, you know, they didn't really go up much and much at all. So it was like, I think the one thing that we learned was that most of the WCW fan base went into the abyss. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. It's like, cause I think that the diehards at the end, you know, because, again, there were, I, I think most fans, like really hardcore fans, watched both products and followed both products, but they were the minority. And you had these fans who, you know, were probably fans, some of them, you know, dating back to Jim Crockett Promotions or Georgia Championship Wrestling or NWA, who grew up with that. And this was their wrestling, and they didn't like the WWF. And they had, you know, for whatever reason. And when WCW died, it wasn't, even, even with a lot of the WCW guys, Going, you know, when, when, when it was purchased, going there, they didn't follow. And I think also part of it was, um, my feeling is, is because of the timing and everything, if WWF would have gotten like Bill Goldberg, Sting and Ric Flair, those kind of guys, even Hall, Nash, Hogan, whatever, right, right away, I think they really would have kept a lot of that audience. But when it was Booker T and Page, you know, being the big stars, that, that wasn't enough to keep those fans and i think in the long run they may have lost those fans anyway because because those fans probably didn't like it and by the time they did bring in like flair and, and some of these and hogan and some of these other guys those fans were they checked out you know i mean they just moved on to other things in life yeah and i think you just have a great point there because you know being there for the 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 invasion page and booker were the top guys followed with you know hugh morris and mike awesome and chronic and those type of guys it was a b-list version of wcw and look at the business that it still did had they right. had bischoff and goldberg and, and hall and nash it would have been a whole different ball of wax yeah yeah 
I mean, if they would have come in with, yeah, Hall and Nash and, and Hogan, and even if you only had, you know, you didn't even need all of them. You could just have like, you know, like I said, just like Bill Goldberg was still a pretty key guy. Sting was a pretty key guy. Ric Flair was kind of like the face of the company. If you had them and, and, and maybe with, with Bischoff as the guy in charge running it, I mean, to me, Bischoff versus McMahon as a television feud would have been absolutely incredible, but they never did it. You know, and then by the time they brought Bischoff in, you know, the ratings were already down by that point. You know, the WCW fans had checked out. And also they never did Bischoff against McManus a feud, even when they had Bischoff, you know, to any great degree. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, because because I think we could have retained a lot more of those fans. Those, like you said, the hardcore WCW fans, because that's one thing that, 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 that I, you know, being obviously it's weird for me because I was in WCW. Then it, it, as it ended, I was in WWE. Then I'm at the beginning of AEW. The difference of AEW is, is it's starting from scratch. Whereas like you said, the Monday night wars and, and WCW nitro came with 30 years of, of tradition for fans who, cause I remember like, for example, like when I first met Lance storm in 1990 uh, at the Hart brothers camp, he wasn't a big WWF fan. He was a WCW NWA fan, hardcore. Really? Yeah, yeah. He loved NWA and WCW, and he didn't because he didn't like Hogan really, but he loved Flair and Arn and Tully and those guys. So you had a real division there. Well, yeah. In that era, in that era, it was like they were more gritty, more. It felt more like a fight. That crew that that they had. You know, during the 80s, when you're looking at the 80s, where the crew that WCW or Jim Crockett Promotions had was a great, incredible group of workers and talkers. But, you know, they were based in Charlotte. Vince was based in New York. Vince had better television. And, and I mean, one of the things that I've learned, and a lot of some of this is with Heyman, too, is that, like, you can have great wrestling and you can have a, a really smart guy running your creative. But the key is still exposure you know what i mean it's like it's exposure and you know and, and i think production values is a lot of it to the public um and just the feel of being major league i mean it, it, so i think that's one of the things that really you know in the 80s really the difference with vince i think hogan was was a huge huge aspect he was lo- so larger than life and i don't think i think people that were around then understand this but i don't think people now because we don't have anyone close to a hogan and just you know well why didn't they you know I mean, even just yesterday's people were going, when did the title on Roddy Piper? And it's like, you don't understand how big Hogan was. Mm-hmm. It's like you had, he was, he was the difference man. You know, he was a big difference maker. And Vince had, you know, Vince had that. And it was, again, he was able to beat the better wrestling and better talking uh, Jim Crockett promotions because he was based in New York. They were based in Charlotte, which helped with the media. And he had better, you know, better production, larger, and everything looked so larger than life. And he had Hulk Hogan. Talk a little bit about, about how the events that led to the actual sale, because, you know, you hear a company is losing, like you mentioned, $62 million, but they had lost lots of money before. And I know that Bischoff wasn't giving up without a fight. And how, how did this all end up falling into Vince McMahon's lap to where he was able to, to buy his, his biggest competition that almost put him out of business in a lot of ways? You know, it's so fascinating looking back because there's so many weird things. And actually, I, I know that that book Nitro kind of that kind of goes into a lot of it. But I just remember like living, living through it and talking to everyone on both sides. And then some of the things people said, and it's always really interesting. So, so essentially, the idea that Turner 
wanted to get rid of wrestling, or not Ted, but that the company did. That's really not true. Now, now they absolutely did at one point in the early '90s when they were losing money on it, and you know, the, Ted Turner's lieutenants came up to him and was just were just like, you know, this wrestling company is costing us money. We could put movies in this time slot and get similar ratings or close to the same ratings with no expense. And Ted just goes, essentially, wrestling built this station. Because, you know, originally the Superstation was built on pro wrestling, the Atlanta Braves, and Andy Griffith reruns. And, you know, and, and wrestling was actually the most popular of the three. So it's like wrestling built this station. The station will always have wrestling. And never bring this up to me again. And, mm-hmm. and, and it was like they were just shot down. So at that point, it's like, okay, we're, we're going to have wrestling. Ted will never you know, get rid of wrestling. And and, every, and I know that, like, within the company, because that story became known, it was kind of like this thing of, Ted's never going to get rid of wrestling. I mean, but what happened was with mergers and everything, Ted no longer had that deciding power. Still, like, even in 99 and early 2000, when they were losing money, there were people who came in cause, and, and wanting to buy the company, I mean, like, for $75 million, which... Doesn't sound like a lot today, but then it was a lot of money, and they still were turning them down as late as, like, I would say, um, early 2000. By later 2000, uh, the losses were so high they wanted to sell, but the idea was they, they, you know, wrestling was still even even although the ratings dropped greatly in recent years from the peak of only a couple of years earlier, the ratings were still good enough. And it was prime time, and their you know prime time ratings fight wrestling was beneficial to the station, and so they but they didn't want to lose the money. So the idea is we'll sell the wrestling company to somebody; they can run it. We'll, we'll keep the TV and keep the ratings, but we won't have all those expenses and all those headaches of wrestling. So that was kind of like the idea. Mm-hmm. So eventually, you know, the guy who they talked to is Vince McMahon, and Vince McMahon had just signed a contract with Spike TV. Okay, I mean, because he'd been on USA Network for, you know, forever and ever, and he was getting five and a half million. This is so funny. Now, when we hear about these like billion dollar, you know, or whatever, $470 million a year TV deal, which is between um, Fox and USA for starting in October. Right. So at the time, Vince McMahon was getting for Raw. um, And this is when Raw was doing those incredible numbers, because now we're talking this is 2000 now that this or or, uh, it is 2000 when this is going on. So Raw is like at its peak doing these ridiculous numbers. And he was getting $5.5 million a year from USA Network. That was his number. And Spike comes in and goes, we'll give you $28 million. So Vince is like, jeez, oh, $28 million for just to produce TV? We used to do TV for free and just try to make money on our house shows, right? So it changed. It was a big change, you know, for, for Vince. But one of the deals was is that he had to sign was exclusivity on the station so he could not produce any wrestling and put it on any other station but spike tv over the next five years so then this deal comes but the problem is is that you know vince wants wants it they want vince to run it you know the idea that vince can control both companies he can manipulate them he can do the storylines between them you know it actually from a tbs standpoint it sounds great from vince standpoint it's unbelievable right you know Mm. you've got both companies you can do a feud. You can not do a feud. You can have guys. You can do your own jumps. You know what I mean? It's like, oh, Steve Austin gets mad at WWF and he jumps to WCW. You know, create. You can create. You can create your own wrestling war. It's awesome. The only problem was is that he'd signed that exclusivity with Spike, and he went to Spike and, and, and pitches him and just goes like, "This is the greatest thing ever. We can have 
you know, we're going to have stuff on TBS. We can have stuff on Spike. It makes both brands more valuable because we're in complete control of the wrestling war. We've got every major talent in the world under contract, practically, or certainly every major talent in the United States and, and Canada. And Spike goes, no, you signed an exclusivity with us. You can't do it. So Vince is now out of the running. He can't, he can't buy him. CBS mm. wants the programming, so he's out. So, you know, Bischoff's with, with Fusion comes in, Jerry Jarrett's in there. There's, and there were other people in there. You know, there were several people in there who were pitching stuff. And um, for whatever reason, they make the deal with, with Bischoff and Fusion. Um, they have a deal. They have the press conference it's in early 2001. And, you know, I remember, like, them, them saying, like, I mean, they announced the sale of WCW to Fusion, which Bischoff was the key creative guy behind and it was like okay you know wrestling's going to continue on these stations and eric's going to be back in charge and eric um you know to his credit i i've talked to eric a lot then i think i thought that eric had i mean whether he would have been successful or not no one will ever know i i still don't know i don't even have a hunch but i think he understood why it went down and was you know he, he was already making changes you know mm -hmm. in, in what he was going to do and and cutting the budget way down as well to the point where you know it, it you know even if it lost money it wasn't going to be losing sixty two million you know what I mean right. and 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 also to shine up the company and maybe even maybe maybe the idea was that they bought it at this price and they would sell it to somebody else when they got the thing up and then retain power you know I mean who knows what Eric, Eric's the only one who could tell you you know what his long term plan was in that situation but then you know a couple weeks later. So I, I, I this one thing that I remember. I was talking to somebody in WWF. And this is like within two, three days after this announcement, and and I knew it wasn't a sale. And the TBS people, you know, were saying, "Okay, we did have this press conference. It's you know the ink isn't signed. It's not signed, but we are selling. But yes, it's not a signed deal. Okay, mm -hmm. and part of the deal was is that you know, like I said, that they would still have wrestling on that station, and that that would be the the thing." But right after that, someone from WWF called me and just goes like, they're not going to get the company. And I go, really? And it's like, you know, I can't tell you more. They're not going to get the company. And the president of WWF at the time was not Vince or Linda. It was Stu Snyder who had worked at TBS. So hmm. Stu Snyder, you know, and, and I think that the person who told me said like, you know, Stu knows everything, you know. So, I, I, so it's Stu, Stu Snyder was the guy. And then... I didn't really think much of it. And then one day, you know, all of a sudden wrestling was canceled on TBS and TNT. Mm. So now Eric's contract, it's like, yeah, we can, we haven't signed the contract, but what are we buying now with no television? It's completely worthless. So there's just nothing you could do. So Eric had, it was like a ridiculously short period of time. I think it might've been two weeks. Eric had two weeks mm. to where he either, could make a major television deal or Vince McMahon's getting the thing at a, at a fire sale price because they were going to sell. They gave Eric that time. You can, if you can, if, if you get this deal and you still want it, you can have it. You know, it was impossible. I mean, you know, I mean, you know, just from AEW, sure. you know, as far as like, yeah, you can, you, you can have all kinds of talks and you can get, but to get a deal from start to finish done in television for a national cable deal in two weeks, and Eric tried, but it just was impossible. He couldn't pull it off in two weeks. And Vince got the company for $2.5 million. I mean, can you imagine 
I mean, he made more money. He made more money selling probably the first video of WCW footage than he spent for the entire company and its legacy and all those years and years and decades of great tapes for the network. He got all that for two point five million. I mean, that if you think of that now, that is the most mind boggling thing in the world. I mean, I remember when I heard that, you know, and at the time, you know, I mean, I, I wasn't a multimillionaire, but I probably could have swung a two and a half million dollar loan. You know what I mean? Like I was like, I, yeah. I would have bought that for two and a half million. Why was the price so low? <laughs> I had no idea. <laughs> um, I mean, because it's like just the value of those. I mean, like granted, we didn't know the value that the tapes would have that we know now, but even in 2001, I knew the value of those tapes was going to be a lot more than two and a half million. I mean, that that's like ludicrous, not to mention all those contracts that he could have and the nature of the deal being what it was. He didn't even have to pick up the big contracts. I mean, one of the reasons they didn't get those guys, the Bill Goldbergs and the Stings and all that, was because Vince had the choice of what contracts he wanted to pick up. So he picked up all the mid-level guys that didn't have high contracts and then restructured them within his system. But the, the Bill Goldbergs and Kevin Nash's were still getting paid by, so they sold it and still had all that debt of having to pay Ric Flair and Bill Goldberg and Sting's contracts you know, for a year, two years, whatever they had left. You know, Vince didn't have to handle all the legal problems that WCW had with closing any of WCW's bills. Turner still had to, was still on the hook for all that. So it was, you know, I mean, it was liter- literally... Now that I think about it, this was the equivalent of when um, the the Native Americans sold uh, yeah. Manhattan for twenty four dollars. It really was. I mean, they must have been. He must have been howling like of all these years of this war and millions of dollars spent, and then he wins it with two and a half million dollars. He must have been laughing his ass off. You know? I, I'm sure he still is to this moment. <laughs> if he, I'm sure if like you you go back in time and go, Vince, what happened in like March two thousand one when this went down? I mean, was that like was that the greatest business deal you ever right. made up until these TV deals these last, you know, <laughs> this last year? I mean, you got all of this, you know, history and everything for, for nothing. I mean, there's there's uh, one one element that that I think we left out, and the the reason why they canceled uh, WCW from Turner was they got they got a new head of the network that thought that wrestling was lowbrow. Is that correct, Jamie Kellner? But I'm I'm still wondering. You know, like I said. Because Jamie Kellner, like, literally the first thing he did when he was hired was was cancel wrestling. Right. But like I said, when I heard from WWF right after the, the announcement of the sale, so this is several weeks earlier, I always look back and go, like, they knew. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. like it wasn't, was it really Jamie Kellner or was there something else? Was it somebody who just, for whatever reason, wanted to sell to Vince hmm. and get it out of our hair completely? Because the Kellner thing, I mean, now I remember I was, that day, Jim Barnett, who was super, super well-connected, you know, was right. a famous promoter who at the time was working for WCW. And I remember the day I actually called up Jim Barnett to tell him essentially like, Jim, you know, your company's done and your jobs, you're, you're losing <laughs> your job type of thing. Because I just heard the news and, and Barnett, like, you know, who was probably, not even probably, Barnett was the closest guy in that company to Ted Turner. They had a relationship going back to... 74 or, or 73, whatever it was when Barnett ran George, George championship wrestling on the superstation and they were tight. And, um, I remember calling him and just, and he's like, 
you know, Ted will never get rid of this business. And I go, it's, it's been merged in so many different directions that Ted doesn't have that power. Um, and, and again, Barnett was really like, like, and I go like Jamie Kellner's in charge and he, and he canceled it and he just goes, Jamie Kellner always did hate wrestling. That was the first thing he told me. Hmm. Jamie Kellner always did hate wrestling. And felt it to be lowbrow. So maybe because they own the property of WCW, like you said, they just wanted to get rid of this lowbrow form of entertainment that it was a, you know, the bane of their existence. Just sell it for a couple million to whoever will take it sort of thing. Yeah. But I mean, the, the thing that was so bad was that, that it wasn't just TBS and TNT which were, you know, TBS was built on wrestling and TNT, you know, was the home of Nitro. But it was like, they had a lot of other television stations and holdings and and Kellner was just like, there will be no wrestling on anything here. So it kind of like, it really cut back the the television market for for wrestling for, you know, a while. I mean, like, I mean, the only reason anyone really ever got anything significant going, which was TNA on Spike, was because Vince went back to USA. Because at the time... You know, as, as this is all going down, the, the question was, okay, we thought TBS would want to keep wrestling. TBS, TNT would want to keep wrestling. Vince is going to spike. And USA might even want to keep wrestling because they'd had so much success with it. And, and Heyman, with ECW, his last-ditch effort, I mean, his mentality was, maybe I can get TBS when WCW folds, or maybe I can get USA, which is really what he was hoping for. And he had his talks, and at the end, USA basically said, if we don't have number one, we don't want in wrestling. And that's what pretty much killed ECW, was Barry Diller, the head of USA, going like, if we're not number one, we don't want wrestling. Mm -hmm. So now USA doesn't want wrestling anymore. So that's another place, like, I mean, Bischoff could have gone there, you know, USA. And they were just like, if we're not going to be number one, we don't want it. And, you know, you had nobody but Spike. And then when USA wanted back in, um, Spike still wanted wrestling and that's how TNA got on Spike and that's, you know, but until then, yeah, you had that several year period where WWF was the only wrestling on television of any degree. How did the word start spreading around to where the boys started finding out about it? Well, I mean, it was a news story when Kellner made the thing because wrestling had been on that station for, on TBS in particular, forever. So it was a news story. The funny part of that is I think most of the talent, there were, there were different camps. There were people who were, in, who were in disbelief. There were people who thought that Eric Bischoff was pulling a work. And I said, like, he's not pulling a work. But this, like, no, 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 they're going to have this thing. They're going to say it's dead. And then at the end of the show, it's going to be... Ah, you know, we fooled you or whatever. Now we're starting a new company. And there were people who were just like, at, like you know, these guys were working that they, they, they were, some were in denial. Some saw the tea leaves. I think most saw the tea leaves. The people, most of the people I talked with were just like, oh my God, what's going to happen? You know, what's Vince? And it's basically up to Vince. Who's Vince going to take? Who he's not going to take? But, you know, remember with Vince, the original idea was to run, uh, when he got it, was to run WCW. Right as a second brand on Spike TV. And and the idea was, so, and then Vince went through the whole thing with me. It's like, we have to give them Monday because we have to actually make them strong. That was the first thing Vince told me, which I was shocked. It's like, we're going to put WCW on Monday night and then we're going to have, um, you know, the SmackDown on UPN would be, um, you know, the, the WWF show and they were going to be warring. Shane's going to run one and I'm, you know, on, as a, you know, television performer type thing. He went through the whole thing with me, 
so at the time it was like, okay, you know, Vince is going to get what he wanted the year before anyway. And then, you know, in, in one night, Vince changed his mind and threw the whole thing out. Right, right, right. It's amazing, and we'll get to that, but it's amazing how Booker T versus Marcus Bagwell changed the course of wrestling history. <laughs> Can you imagine? Yeah, right? You know, it's so funny, too, because I, I know that Lance Storm was one of the guys that had come over, and I think him and Booker had just been working a program that match would have been a great match, but I think they felt Buff and Booker were the two biggest stars, so they put them out there rather than Lance and Booker. Could have been a whole different uh, different course of history if it would have been the La- the Lance match. You know, the thing that's so fascinating to me is that is that, and again, going through that period was how quickly Vince made that decision based on like literally one, yeah, not even one night, but one match. It went from, I mean, or he started the angle. They did an angle with uh, Vince was caught with his pants down by Linda in front of Tori Wilson, which was going to lead to the Vince and Linda divorce. So this is the storyline reason. Mm-hmm. They were going to have a divorce. And in the settlement, Linda gets Monday night television, and she gives it to Shane, and that's WCW. And they were going to use the name WCW. WCW Monday Nitro was mm-hmm. going to be uh, you know, run by WWF, and that was it. And then the reaction to that Buff Bagwell and um, Booker T match in Tacoma, Washington was so bad. And I remember um, that night, I mean, like literally an hour after the show, I was talking to somebody in WWF and he's like, man, I think Vince is going to drop this whole thing. He's like, never, never. There's so many plans in place. Never. This is long-term planning. And like two days later, um, Ed Cohen, who was the head of scheduling, called me up and goes, oh my God, you're not going to believe what's going on. It's like, what? And he goes, Vince has dropped everything, and I okay. So Ed has scheduled these dates for like six, nine months in advance of of where you're touring, what you're doing, what cities, what cities are Nitro, what cities are, are WCW, what cities are WWF, the whole thing. He just goes, Vince has dropped everything. I have to redo nine months of work oh, like immediately, and I go like, what? And it's like, <laughs> yeah, I have to redo the entire schedule for this company because Vince just. WCW is not going to work. Our audience won't accept it. And that's how it went. I mean, (laughs) once again, just the whole concept that, but that's Vince though, changing things on a whim or listening to, you know, because once again, and and there's, there's a, I know we've jumped ahead of it and we'll go back to the last Nitro, but the first raw with this WCW theme was in Tacoma, Washington. And I remember, like, Tacoma, Washington, I don't know if WCW ever even came to, to Tacoma, Washington. I mean, maybe once or twice, but had they had that in North Carolina or, or Dallas or anywhere, Atlanta, any, anywhere other than, than the, the Pacific Northwest? Okay, I don't remember this specifically, but, I mean, anyone could probably look this up. But my memory seems to be that the very next week or two weeks later, they were in, like, either Atlanta or... I think it was Atlanta, and it was kind of like, you know, this probably would right. do pretty well if it, you know if you had just thought it out and just gone, you know, we don't have to do it this very week. We can wait two weeks to do this, yeah. right, and do it in Atlanta. But you know, they, they did, that's, that was history. That's what happened. You, you know what, Dave? I think you're right because I was involved in the first uh, ECW invasion which happened very quickly after WCW because as we talk the invasion pay-per-view wasn't WCW. It was WCW and ECW, the, the coalition or whatever they called it. 
So that right. was in Atlanta when I think Lance and Rob Van Dam attacked me and Kane, and then everyone else came out of the crowd or something like that. That was literally a couple weeks later because that's the night that Bagwell got fired. Yeah. So you know it was pretty quickly after that Tacoma show. Yeah, I know they were in Atlanta pretty quick because yeah. a lot of, you know, because it was always like in, at that period it was, it was um, God, if they just waited for Atlanta, wow. the crowd probably would have been, I mean, they may have, they would still, it's still a WWF crowd at this point that's going to the show, but they would probably have been not so vociferous and maybe a lot more receptive because, you know, as, as the, the Booker T. Buff, in a sense, those two guys, to a degree, got a bad rap because that crowd was going to hate that match almost no matter what. I mean, they hated right. the match before it started. That was the thing that was so bad. And then the match itself didn't do wonders, but they, those people were just so negative because you got to remember these fans had been trained by WWF. It's WWF audience to hate WCW for years and years. So now they're seeing WCW. So what's the reaction? We hate this. Right. Yeah, exactly. Cause that's what they've been told to do at the WWE show. You know, um, and, and it's it's one of those t- things too. I I wonder, you know, obviously Vince isn't going to shoot himself in the foot, but did he put it there on purpose, knowing that it would tank and and go? See, I told you, WWE wasn't worth a damn thing. I don't think so. I I, I mean, I mean, because again, like if if I didn't know that the schedule was completely reworked and Vince didn't lay out everything to me, right, like right, right, what right, they right. were going to do, I would say, yeah, self fulfilling prophecy, you know, whatever. I really think he had he had too much plus here's the other one too because i remember I, I had heard this and this is at the same time because remember the xfl had just folded when this is all going down hmm. and i remember in wwf it's like we can't have wcw fail because we've just had a football failure and it's a real bad one for vince and vince is adamant that you know it's one thing that he failed in football but it's another hmm. thing if he fails to to launch this thing and make it work in wrestling he can't fail in wrestling especially right now after he failed in football so it's like, I remember it's like, this WCW thing cannot fail. And then he, you know, then he, I, I think that maybe, no, no, maybe that says something in the sense of if he cuts it off before it starts, it doesn't fail. And maybe, maybe, maybe at the time it was like, I can't afford another failure. So let me just never start it. You know, and that's a great point too, because you know how Vince can be when he really wants something to work and look at the, you know, the, the Roman Reigns the push he doesn't give up very easily. I wonder if he was a little bit gun shy because w, uh, XFL had just had just folded. Because like 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 we said, okay, listen, okay, it didn't work tonight in Tacoma. Next week or in two weeks, we're in Atlanta, Georgia. If it doesn't work there, then let's think twice. But maybe it needs some time to grow. That's the other side of Vince McMahon that I can tell you straightforward. I know how he is. He he, he will stick with something for as long as he has to if he really, really wants to do it. Yeah, I mean, that's the other thing. It's like it's like something so big to give up in one week. I mean, it was a vociferous reaction, but, you know, yeah. there are so many things that, that, you know, week one don't necessarily work as big as you expect mm. that eventually, you know, some guys don't get over, snap your fingers, it takes them months to get over, but they end up being really successful characters. And, and Vince has been through that, all that with a lot of people. I think the Roman thing, you know, my, my feeling on the Roman thing was that Vince had been so successful with Cena, even though people were booing Cena, that it was kind of like, right. this, this stuff doesn't, you know, you can do this, but if, he, if he's my guy, you know, we went through this with Cena, and, and Cena was such a successful character that Roman will be, in the long run, a successful character, even if the, the pay-per-view fans boo him. Let's talk about the last Nitro 
did the guys know it was the last Nitro? Was it promoted as such? Well, I mean, I think that the, most of the guys knew that they were going to go be working for the McMahons and that Nitro would be on Spike TV. Oh. So they knew it was the last show on TBS to a degree. I mean, I, I remember because I got the memo. And if you remember, they were talking and throughout the show. Tony Schiavone was the announcer. And it's like, this is the um, final episode of the season. season finale, they never said yeah. it was like the last Nitro. No one ever said it. It's like, it's, this is the final episode of the season. Of course, pro wrestling in those days, and, and aside from Lucha Underground, pretty much it, it's not seasonal. You know, the season never ends. It's 52 weeks a year. So it was so, so weird going, this is the final episode of the season. And even with Bischoff, when he was going to run it, his mentality was that there would be a, a final episode of the season and it would shut down and he would, you know, do this big promotion for a relaunch, you know, a month or so later, you know, so, you know, just the idea that we're, we're starting anew. Yeah. But so, so there was a memo sent out to everyone that, um, this is the final episode of the season. Not, not that the company was folding, not that anything was going on, but the final episode of the season. And, and that's that. So, um, I, I think that the guys, yeah, the guys knew that McMahons were going to be owning the company and they were going to be working for the McMahons going forward. And there was certainly going to be uncertainty of what that meant. But I, you know, they were also assured that, you know, the Nitro would continue. But the guys didn't know that there was going to be a sort of a, a WWE invasion, at least from from the office members, because the, the the Bruce Pritchard was there and and and. Uh, Shane McMahon showed up. That was kind of a surprise to, to the boys, correct? Yeah, I don't think that they knew that they would be there on camera on that show. But, you know, the you know news was out in the real media. And aside from the ones who had decided this was Eric Bischoff's big work and at the end of the show he was going to laugh, and that was really only a few guys. You know, most of the people really understood. They, they knew it was the McMahon. But, yeah, they didn't know Shane and Bruce Pritchard and these guys were coming and, and – the simulcast. I think that the idea of the simulcast did get in the news uh, like a couple days before, because I, I remember going in and, and knowing for a couple days that they were going to like Raw and SmackDown were going to have clips back and forth and things like that. I didn't know exactly how they were going to do the storyline where Vince says I bought it and then Shane has bought it like five minutes earlier and somehow I didn't know that storyline, but I knew the basic gist of. Of, of how that show was going to go down. Uh, was it a surprise when uh, when Jarrett was basically fired? Uh, when Vince fired Yeah, 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 yeah. We fired with Jeff Jarrett and Lex Luger, right? Yeah, yeah. I, and that was well, that was Vince getting back at his old grudges, I guess. <laughs> and that all stems back from when Jarrett held up Vince from uh, years ago from losing the title when his contract was up. Right, and then when, and with Luger, it was when Luger walked out without telling Vince, which was... Really, one of the more because that's the that was the very first Nitro, and Luger had wrestled. Um, I think it was either Saturday night or Sunday night, you know, up in Canada, I think. But he was there, and I guess that somehow his contract expired. But Vince thought he still had him under contract, and he just shows up on Nitro, and literally Vince finds out that Luger, who was not his top star, but was an absolutely very strong, significant star for the company at the time all of a sudden shows up on the opposition's programming like the day at, you know, when, you know, literally he finds out when the guy walks out, which is, um, you know, for Vince was probably, you know, a real memorable and not in a good way moment in the wrestling war, because, you know, Vince always likes to know everything and be in control of everything. Mm -hmm. You know, it was interesting too, because I, I was just reading some stuff about 
uh, kind of the final match on Nitro, which was Sting and Flair. And I always wondered why Flair wore a T-shirt, and it's because he didn't know he was going to be working that night. He, he wasn't working at all. I think neither of those guys were working on the thing, because one of the things that Bishop had done when he was in control of the booking was he was doing this thing where all the stars, he was trying to get all the stars off television, Bill Goldberg, Flair, Sting, everyone. They weren't going to be on any TV. Then they were going to shut it down. And then they would, you know, no Hogan. And then they would come back and then they would all be on. It'd be the return of Bill Goldberg. The return, like these guys would be gone for months. I, I guess it was, it was to build for a big return. So none of these guys had been working. Sting hadn't been working for a while. Flair hadn't been working. And then all of a sudden, for nostalgia reasons or whatever, um, I'm not even sure who was in charge of creative of that show. I think it, I mean, it was Vince's show. So I guess it would be Vince. But whatever it was, then for nostalgia reasons, they, the, the decision was made that the final match on TBS should be Ric Flair and Sting because they were, you know, I mean, they were like the two enduring legends of that brand. So, yeah, Rick wasn't in, in shape for it, um, nor, nor was Sting. But, you know, those two guys, you know, even, even though Rick was, was older by that point, you know, they'd worked together, you know, I don't know, a thousand times. Probably that's not, not, probably not a thousand, but probably a couple hundred times. And, you know, Rick could do a match with Sting in his sleep. And it, I just remember it was like, yeah, you know, Rick and Sting, like with, with no preparation and, and everything like that, they're still better than most of the guys. <laughs> There's actually something that I read online, which, of course, if you read it online, don't believe everything you read, that Vince actually booked that because he wanted to see it one last time because he was a fan of their work. I don't know if Vince would actually have ever watched a Sting and Flair match. I don't know if Vince is the type of guy that actually watches wrestling if it's not his own. Yeah, I, I just remember it was like a nostalgia thing, like the idea that like if we're going to close the book, and to me, you know, watching it and knowing what it was, that, that kind of made sense from a story standpoint. It's like, you know, Ric Flair and Sting was the match that did this incredible rating that launched Sting's career. And then for the next, so this is in like in 88, and then for like the next 13 years, those were the two guys who were, you know, guys came and went in WCW. But Ric Flair and Sting, you know, even though Flair went at one point and all that, Sting actually never went anywhere. But it's like these are the two guys most associated with the brand, and so that was they were the closing match. So that ends WCW, and then, the, like I said, I was there. So was the next week? Was were all the guys that they signed on the show right away, or did there was there a little bit of a of a uh, of a lull in between? Did those guys have to go to? to you know WWE affirmation class were they just showing up I can't remember exactly did the invasion start right away I don't remember like I know that it, it took a little while before the guy started like doing stuff I, I, you know um right you know like I think that there was like maybe one or two guys that did something pretty quick and then a few weeks later it was a bunch of guys you know it was right. kind of like you know like remember like the, the I remember the one show where there was that that gang fight scene remember mm -hmm. where like everyone from w, wwf was jumping on chuck palumbo and yeah. some other guys. Just beating the shit out <laughs> of them and everything yeah yeah it was kind of like your initiation <laughs> yeah it was kind of <laughs> yeah it was it wasn't like buff and um and booker was you know the, yeah. the first one and there was nobody else on that show other than arn and scott hudson did commentary you know on that on that first show and then you're, there really wasn't a lot and then a few guys were there and i remember at wrestlemania they were all you know, I think everyone was there at WrestleMania in the suites or something. And then 
they started rolling them out on. Uh, I, I know something happened that that they were supposed to keep it a secret, and somehow Sean Stasiak did some kind of an interview where he he told the reporter that WCW guys were going to be there, and Vince was furious, so he stuck him up in the in the box at WrestleMania rather than having him actually come to the ring and do something. Yeah. You know, it's interesting here. I'm reading the WCW Invasion. So we're talking March 26th was the very last uh, Nitro. The Invasion pay-per-view was July 22nd. So four months later, they're basically blowing off WCW versus WWE. Well, the real blow-up was November when they did the match in Greensboro where, you know, like the, the, you know, the losing brand would be gone. Oh, okay. Right, right, right. But, but, but the Invasion was the first one. So the thing with that Invasion show, and this is the, the, the thing, because, I mean, the whole Invasion thing was just handled so badly. I, mean, I think Vince's original idea, I mean, who knows if it would have worked, but I just remember when he was pitching it to me, I mean, I thought it was going to be the greatest thing in history. Mm-hmm. It's like you got control of everyone. You're going to manipulate it back and forth. It's like, you know, it's like I said before when we talked about, like, the original thing in 2000. It's like Vince had all this marketable talent and, and all this at his disposal. And somehow, you know, there were a million things that went wrong. You know, I mean, again, I think part, you know, like like the first match, it's Undertaker and Kane against, was a DDP and... Might have been against Chronic or something like that. I don't even remember. No, no, you're right. It was Chronic. You know, DDP had the feud with Undertaker. Right. Which, which again, yeah, when the DDP-Undertaker feud and, and you know, Undertaker didn't want to put DDP over in any way. So he kind of, but the Undertaker and Kane against chronic thing was like this one sided squash. And at the beginning you need to get like the, the new guys over. And it was just a lot of that. But even so that first invasion pay-per-view did, I think it was 775,000 buys. I mean, it, it beat many WrestleManias and yeah. there's still to this day, there's never been a, professional wrestling pay-per-view that was not a WrestleMania, not a SummerSlam, not a Survivor Series, nothing. Uh, Rumble that did better than that Invasion pay-per-view. That was the hottest non-WrestleMania pay-per-view ever. So there was an appetite, at least, to see oh. the idea of WWF versus WCW. And and Once again, Dave, I, I was there. I was in the main event. I'm looking at it right now. It, it was WCW, ECW Coalition. Booker T, Bubba Ray Dudley, Devon Dudley, DDP, and Rhino against Jericho, Kane, Kurt Angle, Steve Austin, and The Undertaker. It's a little bit of a mismatch when you're looking at Team WWF versus WCW, but that's a 10-man tag, and I still remember the payoff I got for that show was the biggest payoff I'd ever gotten at the time with the exception of one WrestleMania. Yeah. And in a 10-man tag, because usually if you're in a single, you're going to get a better payoff than in a 10-man tag. That's right. 10-man tag. And I got – and keep in mind where I was at the time. So I can't even imagine what, what Austin and Undertaker probably got for that. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, it was it was such a successful show, but it did go down, you know, and it, it ended up being considered one of the most – you know, one of the more botched angles in, in history. You know, and part of it was, again, like what you said, look at the difference in the sides. Um, right. The key – when you mention those those the, the coalition guys, it's like you know you didn't have. I mean, the signature guys of, of ECW were like Rob Van Dam and Sabu. Probably the signature guys of WCW were Ric Flair, Sting, Bill Goldberg, Hall Nash, Hogan. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's like if you actually had those guys. In fact, I remember one of the. I I, I used to argue with people there. And I go, I know Goldberg. I know it was Goldberg and Flair were the two. 
you know, where it's like, I know their contracts are, are high and it would cost a lot to get them, but they're going to be worth their weight in gold because I always thought if you had done, think that that thing did 775,000 buys. Think of if that main event, instead of being 10 man tag, was Steve Austin against Bill Goldberg because that was a match that I that, that everybody wanted to see, right? Right. And at that time, and I was like, you can do Steve Austin and Bill Goldberg. I go, you'll beat every WrestleMania, you'll beat every show you've ever done in your history. Yeah. And Goldberg will pay for himself in one night. And it's like, well, we can't be sure of that. I'm like, I'm positive. <laughs> or, or even even or even 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 one better, Dave. Austin versus Hogan in 2001. I mean, that would have been huge. Austin and Hogan. Austin and Sting would have been big. Huge at yeah. that point. Still, I mean, Goldberg and Goldberg or, Goldberg or Hogan would have been. I think Goldberg actually would have been bigger than Hogan. But whatever. Yeah. yeah, Austin and Hogan at that point in time, that would have done you know way over a million buys. In a straight singles match, for sure. And the funny thing is, just looking at the ECW Coalition, Rob Van Dam was on the show. He worked against yeah. Jeff Hardy. Why they would have Rob working against Jeff and not have Rob in the main event with Rhino, but I don't think Vince really ever really got what Rob was doing, maybe. Yeah, because to me, Rob was, at that point, the last couple of years of ECW, I, I always thought Rob was the biggest star. Sure. By, by Paulie's booking. He, he, he was always booked as the biggest star. But once again, you come through the WWE, and it doesn't matter what you've done in the past. It all see, it depends on where, where Vince sees you uh, as to where yeah, you're slotted. Yeah. So, I mean, as we wind down here, you know, in, in, in hindsight, and I think ECW is the same. If WCW had made it until, I don't know. I mean, it, let's say, let's, let's play Armchair Booker. Let's say Eric had, had bought WCW and was able to get on TV. Do you think it could have rallied back? Do you think people would have stuck around to check it out? Would it, do you think it would have lasted at all? What, 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 do you, what are your thoughts on that? It's just so hard because I've thought about that a lot. I've never, I've never been able to come to a conclusion because Eric still, there was no guarantee Eric would have made it work. Right. But I, I absolutely, just at that time, just remember what I thought. I thought he had a, a, a shot. I thought he had a – but the, if he had survived a couple of years – They'd have never gone out of business after that because that's when TV money started really coming in. Mm-hmm. And and Paulie the same way. If Paulie could have survived ECW three more years, and you know gotten you know like even like, for, for, for the, the way that Paulie ran a business, if he had got even like ten million dollars a year from television, you know I mean he probably may have figured out a way to still like not make money off of it and maybe break even, but he wouldn't have had those big losses. He, mm-hmm. He'd have been able to budget it. And um, like today, you know, in, in the situation, and that's why today's business is so different. I mean, the, the, when we talk about AEW, so the disadvantage is that, that it has compared to WCW is that WCW had that history and fan base and built-in base. And AEW is sort of starting with, I mean, yeah, you know, yeah, you and, and you know, you have a name and, and Young Bucks and, and Kenny Omega, you know, have that a name to a degree. But, you, you know, it's not like the continuation of a national promotion that has been around and on TV for years and years and years. So that's the negative. The positive is, is that there's television money and TV is so desperate for something that can do ratings and wrestling historically at a high level is going to do competitive ratings and at times fantastic ratings. But right now it's still competitive ratings and there's so much money in, in that. I mean, in, in UFCs and, and a lot of these sports leagues, major league soccer and stuff that are get, that are getting, television money that you know all of these companies probably would have you know been unable to exist 20 years ago that now you know are, are you know made i mean like wwf 
WWF will now, you know, anyone who thinks oh, WWF's going to go down, this and this, WWF, I mean, for the next five years, WWF's going to make so much money, it's not even funny, and probably, like, I don't, nothing's forever, but forever, WWF is always going to be around, because it's, it's, you know, unless television dies, and and streaming dies, and I don't believe either of those is happening. Well, and, and, and also, too, and it doesn't matter what they put on the show. It, it does not matter. You know, you could put you know Funaki versus Brian Alvarez in the main event of WrestleMania, <laughs> you know, and it's really not going to make a difference. And they're I still think- gonna make, They're still going to make money. Yeah, the, yeah, the UFC and WWF have these built-in platforms where their money is, you know, wrestling was never guaranteed money. It was like, it was hand to mouth. Like, I mean, like Jarrett used to go like, um, you know, if I have bad ideas, then all of a sudden we, you know, we, we don't go out to a fancy restaurant on a Saturday night. Right. I have good ideas and we do type of a thing because it's like you're, you, you would be up and down depending upon, you know, your, your ideas on that week. Whereas now, I mean, no such thing exists. Your money's guaranteed and, and that's why the stock is where the stock is. I mean, it's, incre- it's, it's incredible because the actual popularity of wrestling is nothing compared to that period that we talked about, like 99, 2000, 2001, as far as the general public. But from a business standpoint, the business is so much more successful financially. Um, every, you know, and, and with AEW going in, um, finally, we're going to have some competition, hopefully, that you know, also you know, it's probably the best thing for Vince, even though he probably doesn't want it. We've we, we talked about this before. And it's the best, and it's certainly the best thing for the wrestlers, for sure. Well, and I think for the fans as well, because like we said, you know, 18 years without a viable competitor, and, and, and with AEW, we still haven't had a show yet. We don't know, you know, there's so many uh, variables, but I think, like you said, I don't think Vince wants the competition, but even though he doesn't need to to pull up his proverbial socks from a booking standpoint, I bet you he will. I think you're going to see a lot of improvements and a lot more thought put into some of the booking. At least I hope so, because now, you know, if you're running a race and there's nobody behind you, you're going to slow down. If there's someone on your heels, it's going to make you move quicker. And I think Vince just being the way he is, whether he's 75 years old or not, he that competition, I think he's going to thrive on it and in a way almost needs it to keep himself fresh. Well, you know, here's the thing, if you look at it in hindsight, okay? And, and you know, Vince has, has, has tried to keep everybody down because he doesn't want a repeat of the Monday Night Wars era and everything. But if it was not for the Monday Night Wars era, pro wrestling would, you know, the greatest thing that ever happened to Vince, you didn't think about this, was the Monday Night Wars. Because, because it forced Vince to change and adapt. And that's why Vince, you know, if it wasn't for that, wrestling was never going to get that popular without that fight. It was the greatest thing that ever happened to Vince, but it was also the thing that he probably hated the most when it was going on and, you know, would have done anything if he could have nipped it in the bud and kept it from happening. Yet it was, for long term for him, it was the greatest thing that ever happened. And, and that's kind of like the weird part of this. And, and, and again, you know, like trying everything he can to, to keep, you know, any competition going from getting off the, the ground. But at the same time, for the industry as a whole and for everyone and even for, and, and maybe even for him, you know, but again, when you're in full control, complete control of something for so long um, and you dictate everything and, 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 and all that. And then all of a sudden it's like, you know, unhappy people are actually saying I'm unhappy. You know what I mean? It's like, mm-hmm. and we're hearing it every week. It's kind of like, it's, it's, it's a new era and it's probably not an era he wants, but you know, that happened, 
look, he was he was losing guys left and right to WCW, and you know Hall and Nash and Hogan and you know although Hogan wasn't a direct one, but Hall and Nash were direct, you know, and and Ted DiBiase and the whole list of guys, right? Um, mm-hmm. Even Brett, and um, I'm sure he hated every bit of it. But at the end, the the reality was is the when it was over, he was much stronger than when it started. Last question for you: What do you think the biggest factor was that caused WCW to to go out of business? To collapse terrible creative well i watched those shows every week i couldn't believe how bad they were i watched those ratings fall i watched those attendance falls it was it was a mentality that when they sent people when they when they would run a house show i mean i remember going to a house show in san jose my hometown and there were 11 guys that were listed that weren't there Mm -hmm. and you know it was like randy savage and and it was one of them you know who was you know a gigantic star but and then there were probably four guys as almost at the level of Randy Savage that weren't there, but it was key guys. And I remember sitting there and there was like this kid and his father are there like sitting next to me and the, you know, the father's having a decent time. And the kid's like, you know, why isn't Randy Savage here? Hmm. And the father goes, Oh, they just tell you people who are going to come and, and you know, but it, it's, they don't, they don't even care about us. Like type of thing. And it's like, that guy's not coming back. And you know, the attendance is, it was um, not caring about your audience at the live shows by delivering what you advertise and thinking that you know you can advertise anything and who cares. You know, it's short-sighted thinking like that, which led to house show attendance dwindling because those people wouldn't come back, and just terrible creative and not making new stars. And, and the same same thing happened with Dusty, like when in, in, in like that Four Horsemen era, it was like those guys that he had on top. And then the same thing, it's like, yeah, these guys are real big stars, but they need new opponents. And you need the younger guys to move up. You know, it's like when, you know, look, they had you, you know, and you had to leave to be a star, right? But right. You were ready. You were ready. Benoit was ready. Eddie Guerrero was ready. Ray Mysterio. Look at what a great star Ray Mysterio ended up being. And he was fantastic then. I mean, mm-hmm. he was, I remember Ray Mysterio used to blow my mind when I watch him wrestle, but they never would let him get to a, get past a certain level. They never, you could talk, you could wrestle. You were slotted. You know, you know that, right? Yeah. No matter what you did, you could have gone out there and had a, Four-star match, five weeks in a row, tore the house down. You know, we, you and I, we talked about you and Eddie Guerrero as a tag team, right? You come in there, just thrown together as a team, you look fantastic, so then you never team again. Like, what, what the hell was going on there? And that was WCW. It was terrible creative, and, and to me, that's what killed it. You know, the Jamie Kellner stuff and, and the sale and all that, that was after. Because if it wasn't for that, there would be no – the ratings would be too high, the company would be too profitable – and when Jamie Kellner comes in at that point with this company that's making them money, that's on the top of the cable ratings, and he goes, I hate wrestling, but goddamn, you know, look at these ratings. I'm keeping my mouth shut. Right. No, that's a great point, man. And like you said, those four names that you announced from, from, from Ben Wada, Eddie to me and to Mysterio all became very successful world champions. And that would not have happened in if we would have stayed in WCW. That's just kind of the way it was. So. You can you can look at your career and and you I, I've never asked asked you this but I would think I know the answer. The greatest thing you ever did was leaving when you left, right? Right, of course. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. So, and I did it again. So we'll see what happens with AEW. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe ten years we'll be talking about what happened with with, with this. So, uh, but Dave, always a pleasure to talk to you, man. And uh, I look forward to coming up with another topic where we can uh, do this again soon. Okay, thanks, Chris. Cheers, man. Thanks. 
All right, thanks again to Dave Meltzer from the Wrestling Observer Newsletter. Always great to talk to him about wrestling history and what's happening in the business today. Sign up for the Wrestling Observer Newsletter if you aren't doing that already. WrestlingObserver.com for all information, daily podcasts, weekly newsletters talking about all the events in the wrestling world. You don't want to miss it. Lots and lots of great stuff. And it's still so crazy that Vince McMahon was able to buy WCW. Uh, even crazier that now AEW is getting ready to debut May 25th, Double or Nothing, MGM Grand. Make sure you are there. If you can't get your ticket, you can watch it uh, streaming. It's going to be all announced very, very soon. Huge news coming from AEW very, very quickly. Also, huge news about Fozzie and when you want you to come rock with us on our spring tour if you live in the North Carolina South Carolina Philly area May 15th in Greenville South Carolina at the Firmament with uh, Anita Strauss opening Talk is Jericho alumni May 16th Greensboro North Carolina at Cone Denim with Nita Strauss opening May 17th Virginia Beach at the Lunatic Luau May 18th at the MMRBQ in Camden New Jersey at the BB&T Pavilion uh, July 12th a few mo- about a month later a couple months later in Mansfield Ohio at incarceration and then we're headed west this fall we built a whole tour unleashed in the west we built that tour around our opening slot for iron maiden at the bank of california stadium in los angeles on september 14th but we're also going to be going to denver on september 5th then colorado springs grand junction colorado salt lake city crystal bay nevada san francisco sacramento las vegas san diego tempe arizona tucson arizona el paso Texas, dallas texas houston texas Texas, Hattiesburg, uh, uh, Missouri, Hattiesburg, Mississippi, sorry, and uh, Atlanta, Georgia, September 28th at the Masquerade for the Cage Cult. My good buddy, Jesse Cage's second year anniversary of being the top rated rocks uh, show, rock station in Atlanta. So come check it out. Go to fozzyrock.com. All tickets and VIP info, one of the greatest meet and greets you're ever going to get. We play a mini concert. We rock with you. Go to fazerock.com for that. And don't forget to come hang with us again on Chris Jericho's Rock and Wrestling Rager at Sea Part 2. We set sail January 20th, 2020th. Come join Fozzie, Ric Flair, the Wolfpack, NWO Wolfpack, Scott Hall, Kevin Nash, and Sean Waltman, Jake the Snake Roberts, Queen Charmel, Booker T, MVP, uh, Brad Williams is the host, funny, funny guy, Vicky Guerrero, special cruise director, her Eddie's daughter Shaw Guerrero will be there with her burlesque troupe, the Vaudettes. Jack Slade is the is the cruise mascot. Uh, Jeff uh, Red Cup Jeff is going to be there. Teddy Irvin will be there. New York Rangers alumni Eric Bischoff and Conrad Thompson. Farewell to Fear, Rubik's Cube, Killer Queen, the biggest uh, biggest and best female queen cover band in the world, Dave Spivak Project, Jared James Nichols, Kickaxe, DDP hosting live DDP yoga workshops, AEW, all of the hugest stars. We will be there wrestling, tearing it up for you on the ship. Beyond the Darkness hosting more creepy paranormal events. So much more to come. We're announcing the entire AEW lineup very, very soon. Book your cabin now at ChrisJerichoCruise.com. We are 84% sold out. This is going to sell out over the next few months. So if you want to join us for the vacation of a lifetime, come do it now. All right. Coming up Friday, we return to the rock and roll with Darren Malakian of System of a Down and Scars on Broadway. System of a Down, one of the biggest bands uh, from the 2000s. That he will be here telling all the great tales about that crazy band and his new band, Scars on Broadway, as well. Until then, we'll see you. Stay hard, stay hungry, peace, love, and hugs, and a big game.